What Frankel says is that you pursue a project beyond yourself, and this is what people do. You know, they pursue projects beyond themselves, not because it makes them happy, but because it makes suffering worthwhile. It makes life bearable. Whereas if your whole goal is happiness, you can't but be disappointed. You can't but be miserable. So the whole point, the point of what you're doing is the thing beyond yourself because you have a project that has meaning and value. It allows you to endure things. Like journalists don't go on hunger strikes in countries with dictatorships because it's going to make them happy. They do it even though they know they may die because it matters. And I think that's part of what's missing. There isn't any kind of larger project beyond the self that gives your life meaning and that makes suffering worthwhile. And that's a very hard thing to live with. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Or they've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the fire session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Hello, this is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHO source at the top of the hour. Today's episode, I'm going to be sitting down with Dr. Ashley Frawley, a researcher, senior lecturer, criminology, sociology, and social policy educator who has done numbers of research, written a book. Some of her research includes mindfulness and the psychological imagination, the value and value in exercise for pluralizing economics instruction, medicalization of social problems, not very nice, deviance, stigma, and nutritional guidelines related to healthy weight and obesity, unhappy news, process, rhetoric, and context in the making of the happiness problem, and happiness research, a review of critiques. And lastly, her book, Samoics of Happiness. So we'll be talking about that today. So without further ado, I'll play the episode. Okay, well, we're live. First off, thanks for coming out to the show. Thanks for having me. So we were just talking about how you're in Greece, and you had your forest fire on an island over there and then you said that when the locals were saying oh everything's gonna be fine and you were saying no it won't be fine because fire moves really quick since we're gonna be talking about sort of the flaws of the pursuit of happiness and your research is that sort of a leniency towards people just want things to be fine even when they're not fine like is there a bias there or is that just a not related thing that i'm aiming for the home run for <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I think, uh, I think it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to, um, generalize something that's very common in the English speaking world to other places. There's certainly like a lot of similarities between cultures and that sort of thing. But I, I do think that the sort of dominant therapeutic culture takes like a little while to reach, uh, to cross linguistic divides. That's a very common thing, actually. Um, it, you know, you'll see like a, a moral panic will spread all across the world, but it, it'll spread all across the English speaking world first. 
And then like 10, 15 years later, you'll see it pop up somewhere else um, in Italy or something like that. It just, there's a lag um, before a particular cultural phenomenon makes its way somewhere to another place. But in terms of people wanting things to be fine, um, no, I mean, they were right in the end. Things were fine. It was a close call. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, people have been living in that, you know, this is where my husband is from, Evia. And people have been living in that on that island for a long time. And they had seen forest fires, although not for a very, very long time, several decades before. Um, and they were fairly confident that they wouldn't burn you know, their particular village. Um, and they were right. Um, but I was sitting, what, what, what concerned me was like, is it that they have, they know the island better than I do, which they of course do, or is it they, that they don't realize just how quickly fire spreads. And I do think sometimes my husband has this kind of perilous optimism. <laughs> I, you know, I'm always like expecting the worst. You know, I'm like, uh, you know, that that cliche or like, oh, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. Right. And if something if something good happens, well, I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Whereas my husband never thinks that something terrible is going to happen. Um, and I just think part, part of that is that he didn't grow up in a culture that preaches endless awareness of every single social issue he didn't grow up like um on the internet and you know you know we feel like it's our responsibility to be aware of every potential risk no matter how small and that's a big part of anglo-american culture this idea that the good citizen is risk aware you're aware of every potential risk no matter how small as a parent you are aware of every tiny thing that could possibly happen, regardless of how minute that risk is. And my husband thinks I'm a basket case because of this, um, because I, you know, I'll, I'll say like I remember reading some awful story, as you do, and I was like terrified of this thing happening. And my husband was looking at me. He's like, "This is like one in, in three billion people. Why are you worried about this?" Um, but it's like so ingrained into us that we have to have this kind of risk consciousness. So I don't. It's not necessarily there's like this cultural perilous optimism and so on. Um, I think there's part of it is just that I have, you know, I've grown up in a culture that has always said you should be aware of the worst case scenario as quite likely to happen and act accordingly. And he didn't. Prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. That saying. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Whereas they would, um, you know, they I don't think that risk. I think there is a certain growing risk consciousness for sure. Um, but it's certainly not to the extent yet anyway, uh, that it is in, in English speaking countries. Got you. And there's always so much with the news. You sort of address that. Oh, we have to know everything bad going on. America leaving Afghanistan is the latest thing. And some people will like ask me like, what's your thoughts on this? Or what's, what do you think about this? And that's one of those things where I should know, I should understand it, but I honestly don't know much about the topic, like virtually anything. Mm. is my mindset is sort of well i can't influence it it's horrible i know that much but i don't know the details so i'm not going to talk about it so is that like a sort of blissful ignorance on my end no i mean there are lots of topics where i would rather listen than talk (laughs) i mean i think that's normal you can't be expected to be an expert in absolutely everything um there will be people who will know more than you i mean Nobody knows more than me. I know everything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't think everybody has to be like super turned on to everything that's going on in the world. Um, I do think that 
as a society, we are tuned into the things that one interest us and two that affect us. Um, and I think that's enough for like a, a democratic arrangement. You don't have to have like a PhD to be part of a democracy, you know, and then there's, you know, in terms of dealing with these kinds of issues, I think that, you know, that would require to, to feel as though that you could influence things on a world scale would require a level of international organization that lay people would feel a part of that just doesn't exist. Um, and there were like sort of inklings of that, you know, in the 19th century, 20th century with sort of like international workers movements and that kind of thing. Um, but that's not really a thing anymore. Um, so we have become a, li a little bit more insular, but I mean, the worker movements mm -hmm. kind of like unions, like that kind of stuff. Sort of, yes, in that kind of spirit, but also um, movements that connected issues suffered by people all over the world as part of one movement for emancipation or like for workers' rights or whatever. You know, you had like international working men's movements, that kind of thing, <laughs> which are not exactly universal uh, in that sense. But, you know, there were things, there were movements in society that were international in scope or at least aspired to be. And those things don't really exist anymore. So we do feel powerless. And part of that feeling of powerlessness is, is real, is a real sense of not being able to affect things beyond your own. I mean, not even just beyond your own country. I mean, like even just in your community, <laughs> like increasingly we're kind of given this narrative that the world is just so complex. It's just so utterly complex and so impossible to understand um, that really the only thing that you should be interested in or worry about is yourself, um, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, you know, that your sphere of influence is tiny. It's just right around you. And even then I've noticed um, toward the present, even the idea that you can control yourself as your main sphere of influence is that's even shrunk where now it's like, there's some sort of therapeutic discourses that talk about the mind as being just so complex and just so disordered. You can't even possibly understand and control it. So just like live in peace within the maelstrom and, you know, like, meditate that sort of thing not that there's anything wrong with that if that flips your boat it's fine but um in terms of like a broader discourse of human action in society it is very limited and it's much more limited than has ever been the case in the past so it's, it's completely understandable that when it comes to larger issues you turn off because there's just no connection between you and those people anymore or i mean probably then there never would have never was but I mean there's no possibility of that connection anymore there's no great movement that can link all of these issues together um maybe maybe one day there will be but at the moment there isn't does that sort of I saw your research covered Buddhism for one part but that also makes me think of like Taoism or Stoicism where it's like oh just go with the flow or just focus on yourself did you cover philosophies and like how that impacts that worldly few so my research doesn't look at buddhism oh, mindfulness movement so no that's all right but what i'm interested in is how these things become public discourses around social problems so there's a very specific kind of focus that i take so i don't kind of launch into a critique of any one philosophy um i mean people do that and that's quite fruitful but that's not what i do what i'm interested in is the particular kind of claims and beliefs and practices that are kind of plucked out of sometimes many different philosophies and kind of amalgamated together um, into this kind of semi-coherent narrative about social problems and how they're to be solved. 
Um, and so what I was interested in was how mindfulness came to be bound up with the language and rhetoric of a, of a widening array of social issues. Um, so, you know, they're going to teach what well, they do. Um, they're going to embed mindfulness into education and into the military. And, was, and, and what I was interested in was what kind of story that tells about social issues and how they are to be solved. And what kind of story that tells about the role of human beings within solving social issues. What I found very interesting about the mindfulness movement is that it was a much more pessimistic discourse than it had existed in, in similar movements previously. So if you looked at the self-esteem movement, for example, of the late uh, 1980s and 1990s, that was, you know, for all of its, for all the promises it made that it could never make good on, at the very least, it was a very optimistic kind of discourse. Um, it was a very simple kind of narrative through this sort of very simple techniques. And, you know, we can raise people's self-esteem and we're going to solve all these problems. So they called it a social vaccine. If we could raise people's self-esteem when they're young, then they're not going to go on to have, you know, teenage pregnancies and they're not going to commit crimes and they're not going to do this and that. And they're going to achieve better at schools, all sorts of things that were going to happen. And now they couldn't make good on these promises because the roots of those issues um, are not how people feel about themselves. They're much deeper. It's like the idea that you could have a one size fits all solution to social issues is just silly. But at the very least, there was this idea that we could solve those issues, you know, that and relatively simply. Whereas when you look at the, I'm not defending that discourse, I'm just saying it's interesting that there, there was this optimistic kind of kernel within it. Okay. But with the mindfulness discourse, I noticed that it was a little bit more pessimistic. It didn't, some people did make these claims. They did kind of claim it was a panacea, but they were much more pessimistic. They would say like, it's not going to solve these problems, but it will help you feel at home within the maelstrom. It will help you. It'll give you a sense of peace as you watch the world pass you by. You know, so it was like, it was and like, and it was also in terms of its vision of the human subject and the human mind, you know, at this, um, I saw this also with the happiness discourse that I wrote a book about in 2015, it was like the way that people talk, were talked about, there was like hamsters on a treadmill, you know, just very like, totally unaware, unable to make sense of our disordered psychology. And this inability to make sense of disordered psychology ultimately explains a wide range of social issues as like the core narrative. But within the mindfulness discourse, it was like, well, we'll never be able to solve these problems. So we should kind of learn how to relax a bit. <laughs> so it was very much this sort of um, pessimistic discourse. There was an optimistic side to it that it was like, kind of like first promote, I always, I call this like first promote X, then, you know, um, somehow, some way, we will solve a problem. So there's like, it's always kind of blurry about exactly how we'll solve the problem. But at first, we could just do this one thing. So like claims makers will insert themselves between some social issue and its solution, even in vague ways. So they'll say, first, we promote mindfulness in school, something, 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 then we'll have a revolution. <laughs> you know? right, yeah. so there was that kind of optimistic side. Um, but they were like, quite vague in terms of how it would be maybe somehow some way people could like get in touch with themselves and or um clear their mind or actually clear out their self-absorption um then they would be become more outward directed and they would be able to solve problems still no clue how to solve the problems yeah. but somehow some way and a self-esteem discourse was similar so there is that kind of thread within it of that kind of optimism but what's interesting is that there was this kind of thread also of pessimism which i found very interesting 
you didn't dive into the philosophy part, but I'm going to say the stoicism again anyway, because <laughs> that makes me think of stoicism where like you apply for a job, it's out of your control. So don't stress about getting the job. Like don't stress about what you can't control, but mm-hmm. that doesn't do anything. It's just, oh, your life's in a rut or you say somebody's in a bad situation, whatever. Oh, don't worry about it. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for telling me not to worry about it. Now my problem went away. It's like, no, it doesn't get to that root of the problem. <laughs> No, because it, there's this sense, this sort of cultural sense being communicated through these stories that we can't really deal with those problems. And, and in that way, it kind of narrates something real. And that's what I'm interested in, really. This is why I study cultural narratives, things that get repeated again and again and again, just have this sense of truth about them. Well, why do they speak to us? And I think what we do, and I, I hesitate to say we, because it's not really like everyday people that are, you know, laymen that are or lay people that are narrating these discourses. It's, it's mainly like middle-class people who have an interest in the area. Um, but what they do is they narrate a sense of powerlessness that I think is real. I mean, people really do feel powerless to change things. People really do feel like, I mean, like look at the 20th century, like the defining moment of the 20th century, like the Holocaust, gulags, <laughs> World War II, USSR, Stalinism. It's like, oh my God, look what happens when human beings put their hands on history so it's like of course you you would step back and feel this sense of powerlessness um but what i i call this um this kind of like idea of taking these past philosophies and bringing them to the present i call this presentist romanticism in my in my work and what that means is that um it's this kind of backward looking romanticism, but it doesn't actually want to go like, it doesn't seek like a wholesale return to some golden past. Although that does exist. There are movements in in society that want that and and try to emulate that, you know, like back to the land movements, that kind of thing. Um, But there, you know, as a cultural discourse, you know, things like mindfulness, things like the happiness movement, um, they go through history and they pick out little bits that speak to us in the present. And they, they, kind of um, extract these things from history as solutions to the problem of the present. Um, but it's always this kind of, um, it's, there's this presentism about it. You're not going back to anything, but you're also not producing some new utopia, something new in the future. Um, you're just you know, using stoicism to say, hey man, <laughs> you couldn't get that job, but you know, the stoics say blah, blah, blah. Or it's like, you know, boy, we're, you know, nine to five is such a grind. But if you just practice this deceptively simple trick, you can meditate even while you're washing the dishes. You can meditate even while you're on your boring commute, you know? So it's always like these, it's this way of trying in a very futile gesture to kind of enchant the present, to give it this kind of magic that it's lost, which is a a kind of another kind of general problem that we have in modern secular societies, that there's no, no purpose, no future, no sense of magic or enchantment and so we often kind of go through history and plunder particular things to bring into the present to give it some magic like meditating while you're washing the dishes <laughs> to use a political example is that sort of similar to how in america we had the uh, make america great again movement with donald trump and the reason that was so profound i heard is because we when we look back, we tend to look at the good things in the past. We sort of, because mm-hmm. uh, I guess it kind of makes sense, but we look at what's good. And that's why that movement gained the power it did was because we glorify the past, even though it might be just as bad or even worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, there's this idea that there was this time in the past when everything was all right. So if we could just kind of go back to that. 
But lots of times it's not even that people want to go back to that, right? They, they do recognize that the past was bad. And this is why we kind of live in a presentist moment, like that the past was bad, but the future is worse. So we just want to live in the moment and we will take things from the past to kind of make our moment livable <laughs> because there's nothing we can do. There's no future. Like there's no utopia. And you can see this in like science fiction as well. There's this long kind of history of utopian sci-fi um, going back to the end of the 19th century of like futuristic visions of a much better world. And this was of course influenced by massive leaps in science and, you know, revolutions and this idea that like people would fundamentally change things and that things would get better and now if you look at sci-fi and like even our you know even if you imagine when you watch like people imagining the far far future it's so you know you you watch this movie and you're like oh wow look like space travel and like uh, interplanetary intergalaxy travel and then it's like oh yeah because uh planet corp wants us to colonize this world and you're like oh oh, we're still here, are we? You know, <laughs> like you think like, oh, by the time we got there, we'd have dealt with all this. Shit. Like, of course we wouldn't have to deal with like working for a wage by the time we're traveling the stars. And then it's like, oh, we have this complete failure of imagination, which, you know, again, makes sense because we really do feel powerless. Um, we, you know, we really cannot see anything beyond capitalism because we tried and we failed. Yeah, and you mentioned the perilous earlier, like the Afghanistan war. I don't update on it too much because I see myself as not be able to do anything about it. I'm not a politician. I could vote, I guess. But aren't we all kind of powerless? Isn't like that justified? Yeah, I mean, and working class organizations were absolutely, and sometimes with violence, completely shut down. Um, and so, I mean, we lost the class war, basically. I mean, it, it, the whole, everything is in dis disarray and the people who are able to organize and are able to give voice to issues tend to be middle-class sort of professionals um, with an interest in, you know, turning every issue into a charitable issue, you know, it becomes like a refugee crisis or something like that, rather than like a, I don't know, like a global problem of is that like colonial a suppression, that kind of thing. Are you saying like uh, an issue comes up, so an organization sort of takes donations and profits off it? Is that what you're saying? Well, sometimes, yes, um, but sometimes not all the time, not not even most of the time. There's this no. sort of, yeah, they there are these, there's like a whole stratum of society whose bread and butter is transforming issues into things that they can do research on or create some sort of multi-level plan for like some kind of management system how to manage populations um and that's that's what they do so if something comes up and it becomes their way of like managing the population so managing the fallout from war you know send a whole bunch of psychologists and um it's like a big sort of area of research now and like the field of global therapeutic cultures is looking at well not now it's been a fit area of research for like 20 years but looking at the way conflict gets transformed into a series of psychological problems amenable to psychological solutions um so you know development theory becomes all about how to go in and change the subjectivity of populations and so you have all these groups that write up all these wonderful documents about how 
lack of well-being is a barrier to development in X country and we, you know, um, trauma from previous wars is the reason why we have more wars so we can go in and do X, Y, Z, you know, and that's just like a tiny little part of it. That's the part that I deal with. Um, but that's like the, the main thrust of any kind of organization that exists. And they're very small and um, relatively ineffectual, although lots of them do really good work. So there are lots of these organizations that will bring like vitamins and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of like large scale global movements, there really isn't anything. And that to the extent that there is something, it tends to be this sort of like um, these projects in in dealing with tiny little issues as they come up. And that's fine because it gets them to their next funding year <laughs> and they just eke out this, you know, this is what happened, right? Working class organizations, large scale social movements, or sorry, you know, working the working class movement, communist movement, socialist movements, they were utterly destroyed. And you saw um, basically politics get um, decimated into all of these tiny little single issue campaigns. So, you know, one person might, you know, I'm for the whales and I want to stop the war and I'm for ecology and I'm for this and I'm for that. And there's a hundred million different organizations that deal with all these tiny little things. Um, and that's fine for them. It gives them a, a reason for being, it gives the people who are in that organization a sense of meaning and purpose. And a lot of what they do is really important, but there isn't any kind of, any longer, any kind of meta narrative that joins us all together, any kind of like overarching story and movement that pulls it all together and tries to create you know um like a, a fundamentally better future it's just like putting up fires <laughs> and there's lots yeah. of people who's there's lots of jobs in that that's it really yeah i was talking with professor nutt he uh, was in the uk was on the board for the drug administration but the uh, secretary of health defense she fired him because he released this article about how ecstasy is safer than horseback riding because like the number of deaths was like one in every 350 people who horseback ride have extreme injuries versus ecstasy one in like a hundred thousand mm -hmm. but that's sort of like what you're saying where um he was trying to bring up the truth or he's trying to actually fix it but the politics sort of stumped him down and fired him for doing his job for bringing light to something that was actually correct because he didn't fit into the same mold of what that overarching organization was Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, because risk is, you know, you don't act on risk in direct relation to its likelihood of happening. Fear is obviously a social phenomenon. And the things that we fear are a cultural phenomenon, things that we fear are very specific to particular cultures. Um, and also to certain organizations surrounding particular issues. So people don't really worry that much about earthquakes in California because there isn't really like a, an organization that is waiting in the wings, constantly looking for an opportunity to you know, ride the wave of something that happens somewhere to bring attention to an issue. It doesn't exist, or you, you, know, you don't hear about it, you don't really fear it. But there are lots of anti-drug organizations that exist for a wide variety of reasons. And a certain kind of um, allure or, or cultural kind of ethos develops around or like a halo of, develops around drugs that's influenced by certain groups morality and certain ideas that we have broader ideas within the culture about you know a certain suspicion of enjoyment especially you know people always say like oh american culture is all about enjoying things but we do have a 
the very fact that everybody always says that shows that we don't like we are, you know, there's always a suspicion that things are coming too fast and too easy. That's why they don't like it. That's why like there's a lot of anti-Americanism. It's like, Oh, you workers, you've got it too good. How dare you? Um, and you don't have it too good, but like, you know, your consumer culture. Um, and so there's this, you know, there's always a suspicion around drugs as this kind of like easy pleasure that you don't have to work for. That's part of it as well. But that's, you know, that's what will encourage people to get involved in these organizations. There's a religious side to it and so on and so forth. And then it becomes, the more that you repeat something, it just becomes the truth. <laughs> and then you just can't say anything against it. And it used to be that if you could kind of like construct something as a valence issue, so something that appeals to both the left and the right for particular reasons, um, then you were pretty likely to be successful. But there were some issues that were just were never going to be valence issues, like uh, abortion. You know, it's always going to be a position issue. It's always going to be something that groups feel extremely polarized about, and they're just never going to agree. It's just not going to happen. Um, and what I've noticed now is there's this tendency to try to create out of these out of these position issues, try to turn them into things that you can't argue with, um, that it just well, everyone in polite society agrees on this um, and and using like social sanctions to do that. Um, and I noticed this. I, I remember and I noticed like young people doing this as well. I remember like one of my young cousins on like social media was like. Well, you know, when your speech interferes with the autonomy of my body, she's talking about like anti-abortion campaigns. Yeah. When your speech interferes with the autonomy of my body, that's where free speech ends. And it's like, oh, that's so clever. That's so clever. You're trying to make it so that opposition to abortion becomes something you can sweep aside that you can't even say you're not allowed to it at all so then abortion becomes a valence issue it didn't work obviously <laughs> um you know is it something that people feel very very strongly about you're just not going to be able to suppress that no matter how hard you try to like kick people out of positions of power or off social media or whatever but you can see that people are trying to do that because what happens with these issues that people don't agree on is you come to a stalemate and so people are now with social media and so on they're finding ways around that by ostracizing particular opinions and so on. So this is what happens is that people will do that to try to say, no, actually there, there is no other position because we're going to put that position outside of society. So it's sort of, you take a factual statement and then you try to say, well, if A equals B and B equals C and C equals D. So my point is proven. It's uh, in fact, you can't argue with it. Mm -hmm. I want to bring it back. You're a opponent, if I'm correct, of like the pursuit of happiness where you believe that's flawed or you even mentioned it earlier, mindfulness or what's the other one? Self-esteem movement, 1980s, mm -hmm. like all these movements keep coming up where focus on this and you'll be happy or focus on this and your life will be better off. What in particular makes you sort of against that? Well, in general, I'm not an opponent of, of the pursuit of happiness. I mean, I don't really care what people do in their individual lives, like whatever floats your boat. It's not really, um, but I do think just at a personal kind of level that excessive self-attention is not good for anyone. And I think that part of what bothers me and why I, I don't like these movements is because they encourage as a matter of fact, and as though it's like scientifically proven as the right way to live, excessive self-attention that you should be monitoring your internal life all the time. But when you do that, you're always going to find problems. 
And that's the point. <laughs> that's the whole point. You become a suitable case for treatment um, because you're constantly enjoined to be thinking about your feelings, to be finding flaws. And if the goal of life is well-being, that is quite different than how most people have lived their lives historically. So Christopher Lash says, and is, you know, lots of people are reading this at the moment, there's like a, a Lash renaissance at the moment, but in his book, Culture of Narcissism, he says, most people throughout history didn't live as though they had one life to live. They lived as though they were living their parents' lives and their children's lives. And so they had this sense of belonging to historical time. But if you have an anchor, so their, their anchor for truth was in the past, but also in the future beyond themselves. And that's how most people lived. Their sense of meaning and purpose was always beyond themselves. You know, um, Chantal Dalsal in her book, Icarus Fallen, says most people lived as though they were signs. You were a signifier of a signified beyond yourself in heaven or whatever. Some sort of transcendental truth beyond yourself. But now we're encouraged because all that's gone. We live in secular societies. Yes, some people do have religion, but it's more of a personal thing. Um, lots of people have religion, but it's more of a personal thing. It's not like a, a guiding force in politics or something like that. Maybe I know that people would say, well, wait, 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 in the United States. But I mean, I don't know. Yes, there there are a lot of people who try to use religion, um, but it tends to be like a post facto justification for something else. But anyways, for the most part, we live in secular societies. And so we don't have this anchor for truth beyond ourselves. And we're increasingly encouraged to think that the anchor for truth and meaning is inside the self. Right. So. What's the purpose of anything? Well, does it make you happy? What's the purpose of life, a pursuit of happiness, like an, as an actual kind of thing within yourself? Because that's different than what was in the Declaration of Independence. The pursuit of happiness signified an openness. It wasn't like, and we will be able to send out a survey after 20 years and we'll find that people rate themselves a seven, but now they've come to the United States, they rate themselves a nine. There's this thing inside their brain that we can measure that has increased because of the pursuit of happiness. No, it was like, it signified the fact that when you leave, when you left Europe and all of the feudal arrangements and so on, you came here, you would be free to do whatever you wanted for the first time in, in, in really history. Um, that's what it signified. It signified an openness. But now it signifies a very particular thing, a mental process inside you. And when your whole anchor for meaning and truth and purpose is inside your own head and in your own body, you're only ever going to find it wanting. Because you can't be happy, happy all the time. You can't have an unending sense of well-being. And also what happened, too, because a lot of this is part of a, a humongous industry. And over time, in the same way that health became defined as something you have to pursue, um, same with well-being, same with happiness. It became defined as something you, you don't have. You thought you were fine. You thought happiness was a field full of daisies. But actually, it's a very particular thing that only scientists have a true knowledge of. So people don't consider themselves very happy, uh, healthy now because they, uh, not because, I mean, by comparison uh, with how they would have felt like 150 years ago. I mean, like if you looked at people's like diaries and so on, they'd be like, oh, you know, I've got gout and my wife has uterine prolapse, <laughs> but at least we have our health because they weren't literally dying, right? So <laughs> health was something you just had when you weren't sick. Um, now health is something you have to pursue. So if you give young people a survey, they'll say like, they, they'll rate themselves as significantly less healthy than people did 20, 30 years ago, even though objectively, you know, we are much healthier. We are the healthiest population. Like we were like, so much bigger and taller 
so much longer lived um, than people were 150, 200 years ago. And yet we have this discourse of like, we're very, very unhealthy. Why? Oh, because, you know, I smoke or I eat junk food or I do, you know, I'm, I'm a patient in waiting, I'm just waiting to fall, <laughs> to fall ill. Health becomes something you have to do. You have to actively be doing something all the time in pursuit of health, right? It becomes your purpose. It becomes like a religion. You like prostrate yourself every Sunday, not at church, but rather at the yoga, on the yoga mat at the gym or whatever. And so the same thing is happening with emotions. It's something you have to constantly think about, constantly pursue. And so you feel less happy. You feel a lack of well-being just in the exact same way that we feel less healthy. And that's the whole point. Because by my book, by my 12 steps, by, you know, why would you do that? First, you have to, and that's how this all happened as well. If you look at these claims making campaigns, the first claims that they make are not that people are very unhappy. In fact, the surveys showed that people were just as happy as they had ever been. Um, and in fact, I remember there was this newspaper article about one of these first happiness psychologists. He went to Australia and he was like, Australia is one of the happiest countries in the world, our surveys show. And it's like, and he's, he's setting up happiness training pr programs in Australia. Like, why does Australia need happiness training programs if they're the happiest country in the world? And they, so they started to kind of change the whole discourse and the rhetoric. And so they, it was that happiness became not, and so it's not like this was a conscious thing, but what was more successful was this idea that happiness is actually something very difficult and most people get it wrong. And that there's this whole science of happiness that you're not aware of, that I am. I have something special here. And it, I remember Richard Layard, who's um, like the happiness guru, the happiness czar, they called him in the UK. He said, happiness takes 10,000 hours of practice. I believe it can only be taught in schools. No, he said, he said, difficult things take 10,000 hours of practice. How can we expect children to be happy? We have to teach in the schools. Like happiness is this difficult thing that requires practice. And so it became the exact same trajectory as health. It's, it becomes defined by its lack. We piddly little hamsters on a treadmill, we're doing it all wrong. And the fact that we're doing it all wrong explains a wide array of social issues. That also is a big part of the discourse. So that's why I'm, a, I'm an opponent of it because one, it encourages excessive self-attention and two, it creates a deficit in order to have a movement, in order to have a purpose. Um, and three, it's a really bad way of explaining social problems. If somebody's happy because something good happens in their life, what these people would argue is, oh, you think you're happy, you feel happy, but that's not real happy. And then they'll educate you in a way that what do they educate as the real happiness? It's the same thing, right? It depends. Like there's so many. I mean, it's kind of waned now. They're on to something new. And that's what always happens with these movements. Part of what drives them is novelty. Um, and when they're not novel anymore, they're on to the next thing. Um, but there were so many of these claims makers, just so many people selling different things. And there were all sorts of different threads within it. So some people would sell like sustainable happiness. Well, that's, you know, that's not real happiness because you're not going to be happy afterward, right? You know, you're not really going to be happy when you get that promotion because like a week later, you're just going to be back to where you were. So they'll try to sell you on sustainable happiness. Or um, is and it was funny too because as I got more, you know, as the as time went on with this discourse, how people defined happiness got more and more alienated from like anything that anyone would recognize. So people, I remember once there's like a survey came out where they actually asked people what made them happy, and it was like all this stuff like, 
oh, a smile from my child, like, you know, a kiss from my husband, a field full of daisies, a sunset. It was all this like random stuff. And they were like, and and then I, I saw that and I like highlighted, it was like, I put like, I coded it as like lay understandings, which very rarely came in, except when people said it was wrong. And then I compared it to like the experts and it was like, happiness is sustainable. Happiness is pro-social spending. Happiness is, is like all these, whatever it was that some, whatever acts someone had to grind because it was such a big discourse at the time, they would try to connect it somehow with happiness. And this, this happened with, in a lot of countries as well, when they set up, when it became, when they were successful and became, and claims makers were successful in making this an issue, a big deal. Um, then policymakers, you know, they would say, Oh, we're going to have like well-being economies. So this is a thing in Australia, for example. And so they basically, if you want funding, you have to like recraft this thing that you want as though it's like good for well-being. And everybody doing projects is like, oh, crap, we got to meet this well-being initiative. And they're like, um, <laughs> they just start making stuff up like, oh, it'll improve well-being number six. Like it just starts getting totally ridiculous. Wow. In the long-term happiness cell, like you said earlier, if you're always happy, is that sort of, quotations meaning of life who says that's the thing you want to have the ups and downs you want to experience the emotions but when the happiness definition gets so complex like you said what's mm -hmm. what would you say is the definition of happiness like what is the defined term happiness well you can't it's impossible it, this is it's um for it's a floating signifier it's used to vaguely motion to the good um and only in the last um three decades really have people tried to pin it down you know they don't like this idea that it could float um that it could mean whatever you want it to mean um because it has to be an expert discourse right so then they, they'll try to define it but what's interesting too is that for all the attempts to pin down happiness as an expert discourse and give it some kind of psychological meaning and give it a very precise definition right because if you if you can't define something it's not really scientific and so they'll try to define it but in public discourses they still let it float and I find that very interesting. So they'll talk about like, oh, we should, you know, we should have happiness policy. We should, you know, have the politics of happiness. And what, what's policy doesn't make people happy. And like, what's that supposed to mean? It's supposed to mean whatever you want it to mean, whatever you think it means. It's the audience is supposed to connect with it at a, at a, at a visceral level. And they do this because they can't connect with audiences in any way anymore. Like policymakers can't talk to you as communists. They can't talk to you as libertarians. They can't talk to you as Muslims or Christians or whatever we live in highly pluralistic societies and so they can't count even on their own voter base having anything in common and so they'll increasingly use this language of psychology and the body and health and that's something that's going to connect with people at a biological level so they would do that they would they use these words because it connects to people but then like behind the scenes they have like a very specific definition um and so you could see this like um in the World Bank's use of, of the happiness discourse in, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, they produced this series of reports where they would like go out and they were like, oh, well, we want to find out like, what is well-being? What is happiness to the poor people in the world? Um, and of course it was like really, people had like really low expectations because they were really, really poor. <laughs> um, and they were like, um, yeah, you know, the, the, voices of the poor are crying out for well-being over money first of all they never asked people whether or not they wanted more well-being than money uh, a lot of the problems that the people did talk about could definitely be solved by money and not well-being <laughs> like um but also well-being was one of was one of four predetermined areas of inquiry 
They had already decided on that agenda. They had already decided what it meant. Uh, and they just went out to seek like this bottom-up kind of justification for it post facto. Um, and this is a really, really common thing. So the definition doesn't really matter. It gets filled with whatever contents. And that's why it's so powerful because it can, it's, it's so open. It can be filled with whatever contents people want it to be filled with. Um, because, you know, that's what it has always meant. Whenever, before it became politicized, before the word happiness became politicized, it was used in that kind of perfunctory way. You know, it was it was a rhetorical signifier of what is good and what is good is whatever you understand to be good. Um, so, for example, in an early article that I looked at a, a newspaper, this is my study in that I published in 2015, my book um, looked at like happiness discourses across newspapers and public discourses for the last century. And I remember there was one article um, from like, I can't remember if it was the 1920s or something like that where they were like, oh, an investment in pensions, must've been in the thirties, investment in pensions would be an investment in public happiness. And they didn't literally mean like, we will have pensions and therefore everyone will go up two points on a happiness survey. It just signified that it would be good, <laughs> you know? And then it became something very particular much, much, much later on. Um, but the part of the reason why it became so powerful was that it had that kind of openness. It speaks to people. It signifies what matters. It enchants the present. Like, oh, what's all this money for? Let's not focus on GDP. What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. Let's focus on your happiness and your family. People are like, okay, yeah, that sounds all right. And also, like, who's going to argue with that? Like, oh, no, people should be depressed. No, government should make people miserable. Like, once you construct the discourse, once you say this is what we should be talking about, then it forces everyone to have that conversation. So like you, and I'll give you an example of this. I remember um, I did this show on BBC called The Big Questions and uh, it was on happiness. And there was this policymaker in the front row with me and somebody in the audience puts up her hand. She says, yeah, you can talk about happiness all you want, but we in the Welsh Valleys, we don't have jobs. And the, you can see this on YouTube. So you'll see that maybe I'm misquoting, but this was like the general gist of it. And the the policymaker on the, um, panel was did this like hand wave and she's like oh you know that's so important blah 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 but what you're really talking about is like what we really need to talk about is the mental health of people and what you're really talking about is like the you know not having a job that's so bad for your well-being <laughs> and you know through this sort of hand waving we ended up having this conversation about well-being but that woman wanted people to have jobs <laughs> that's what she wanted and we wound up having a talk a conversation about the philosophy of happiness you know because policymakers haven't got a flipping clue how to build infrastructure, how to figure out a way to get jobs back in the country, how to act like people talk about like, oh, we shouldn't focus so much on economic growth is though policymakers are like, oh, here's this economic growth lever. <laughs> we'll just have some more economic growth. We'll just have some prosperity. No, pro-growth policies, like policies explicitly attempting to bring growth have often failed miserably. Like we're pretty crappy at controlling the economy. If we could just control the economy at will, we wouldn't have mass unemployment periodically, right? And so there's an interest also in kind of deflecting the conversation onto this word. Um, and then, you know, we all have this conversation about happiness and it, be, it, it makes it very difficult to argue with because it's like, oh, we're going to talk about happiness or sadness or depression or feelings rather than jobs, economic growth, direction of the country, the deep systemic issues that we have. It's like, no, no, leave that to the technocrats. You worry about yourself. You worry about your feelings. So it's kind of like talking about the result 
what we want versus what actually will lead us to that result. In this case, I guess happiness or good of the world, you need to be talking about what leads to that, like the jobs, the infrastructure, addressing important issues. Well, yeah, but I, I don't even think that the goal necessarily was ha- is happiness because this is something that Durkheim said as well, that people have to misquote Durkheim on this. Um, but he says, you know, it's not happiness that causes people to enter into like large scale projects because people often die like before they see their fruition. It's sometimes big changes take several generations to happen. The driving forces underlying why societies change and why we do things is not our own personal pursuit of happiness. Um, it, there are all sorts of different reasons why people do things. And in fact, and this is one of, you know, I think another book that's going through a renaissance at the moment is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, possibly because it's, you know, it really influenced Jordan Peterson. <laughs> but it's a really good book. It's a really good book. And what, um, what Frankl says is that you pursue a project beyond yourself, not because it will make you happy. And, and this is what people do. You know, they pursue projects beyond themselves, not because it makes them happy, but because it makes suffering worthwhile. Uh, it makes life bearable. Whereas if you, if your whole goal is happiness, you can't but be disappointed. You can't but be miserable. So the whole point, the point of what you're doing is the thing beyond yourself, because you have a project that has meaning and value. It allows you to endure things like people don't go on, you know, journalists don't go on hunger strikes in countries um, with dictatorships because it's going to make them happy. They do it even though they know they may die because it matters. And I think that's part of what's missing. There isn't any kind of larger project beyond the self um, that gives your life meaning and that makes suffering worthwhile. And that's a very hard thing to live with. Wow. That's going to be the trailer. <laughs> for the episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I want to address two things, but I guess first off the uh, other country, you said like a uh, well-being was predetermined to be their issue which overlaps into the second thing I want to say, but is that the argument of money doesn't buy happiness that people push forward? Like, oh, you don't need money because it doesn't buy happiness. You can be happy without money. Is that the way of sort of like quotation marks controlling a population, even though most people would be better off pursuing money? You can well imagine the capitalist coming out on the picket line like, wow, money doesn't make you happy. And you're like, yeah back in there buddy like i'm sorry i'll decide that i'll decide so you can see how it's you know we have this idea since probably the new left um in the 20th century that the main problem with capitalism is that it gives us too much (laughs) frankly ridiculous um the main problem with capitalism is that you know this idea of like expanding and generalizing wealth is pretty new right the main you know you don't go out on the picket line, demanding your employer to pay you pay you less, right? You want more, more of the social product that you create, more of the freedom that they enjoy, that the capitalist enjoys on your back, right? They can work if they want to, but they don't have to. We want that too, I want that too, because I make it, I make it with my work and my labor. I want that freedom to decide. And that's what wealth gives us. You know, we are immensely freer today because we don't have to toil most of our lives to recreate our means of subsistence, our, 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 our living. And it's, that's one of the great sort of um, progresses of capitalism is that through this kind of alienation, that is for this separation of human beings from 
the products of their labor, well, that's quite bad. At the same time, it also frees us from a lot of toil, right? So Marx says in the Grundrisse um, that this alienation of subject from object, the alienation of the person from the thing that they create is a necessary step that capitalism produced in order for those things to come back together in a higher form. And we see this all the time now, right? Like music, to make music, you used to have to go to like a recording studio and so on, you know, and it was controlled by these big record companies. It still is. But you have people like in their bedrooms with a Mac, like creating music with like, you know, like they just think it and they create it. So subject and object come back together sometimes in very small forms. We see these inklings of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that this idea of like, uh, oh, you know, you shouldn't want more. You shouldn't want objects. You should find peace and happiness within yourself is this sort of very backward looking romantic conservative argument um against the destructive powerful progressive force of capitalism so capitalism creates enormous wealth but it also destroys enormous amounts of wealth and that's a little bit in the communist manifesto that everybody kind of ignores that you know the cat mark says the capitalist is like the uh, sorcerer who's unable to control the powers um that he's you know conjured up from the netherworld this you know he creates this enormous wealth but then this this becomes the motor of his own destruction and so it's quite obvious then that you would want to downplay that that you would want to say like no it's wrong to want to have more and also just at a very basic level you know i don't have to go like high level theory or anything like that for a capitalist you don't want your workers to be acquisitive right you want your workers to be happy with as little as you'll give them (laughs) um you want the workers in other countries to be profligate to to spend their money but you want your working class to be ascetic. You want them to be happy with bread and water. Um, so it makes perfect sense to preach a, a gospel uh, that might preach the gospel that money doesn't buy happiness um, because demanding more is the volatile progressive force that the working class brings to capitalism. We demand, demand, demand our peace. We demand um, more of the social labor, the, uh, so the social product that we create. And of course, this then drives the capitalist to replace us with machines. <laughs> and then we fight again and so on. And eventually we won't have to work so much in order to get the fruits of our labor. Now, how we get to that wonderful future, I have no idea. I do know that it's being created every day though. Um, so this whole idea of like not wanting more is a very, very conservative kind of discourse. And I think the most progressive discourse are, are, are those who refuse to accept less. And if you ever want to a really good, a much better defense of this than I've just given. Go ahead and read Oscar Wilde's Man's, um, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. It's a wonderful essay, but he says, you know, the poor are to be pitied, but they're not to be um, admired. Um, the best among them refuse to accept their position, you know, um, that we should, you know, you should want more. And he says that the great thing about socialism is that it would free us from having to live for other people. Because <laughs> we do now, that's what we do, right? We live for other people. You live for somebody else's enjoyment. You live for someone else's consumption. You live for the capitalist. You live for, you work a little bit of the time to reproduce your wages, and then you work a little bit of the time so Paris Hilton can go have a party on a yacht. I want to have a party on a yacht. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I produce, we produce that wealth. It's ours. You demand more because you built it. And sorry, I'm going on and on forever, but just one more little anecdote. Yeah. Um, in uh, Wage, Labor, and Capital, which is uh, meant to be a kind of very accessible introduction, Marx writes in the introduction, um, we will not presuppose even the most elementary 
understanding of political economy. We want to be understood by the workers. And I think that's a really important thing as well to be able to write for and speak to like working class people, working everyday people with desires and wants and so on. Um, but anyways, he says, um, he gives this kind of anecdote where he says, or this like story he says, a house may be large or small, but as long as the surrounding houses are likewise small, it satisfies all requirements for a residence. But let there arise next to the house, a castle and the little house shrinks to a hut. And people say, oh yes, of course. Aren't we so greedy and jealous of our neighbors? Naughty us. Isn't it amazing that we can imagine Karl Marx telling us not to envy the possessions of the capitalist class? Not at all. He says, why should we be happy with the crumbs that fall to us from the rich man's table? You should want more. That castle is yours. It was built with your labor. Go out and take it. You built the castle. Why, why shouldn't you want it? It reminds me of an image I've seen where like a bunch of people are holding up this heavy gold slab and then there's like a king just sitting on top of it so it's like <laughs> the people supporting the person who's just enjoying it while everyone's working he mm -hmm. re that person reaps the benefits <laughs> yeah and our kind of ideology of capitalism now would look at those people underneath that big gold slab like oh isn't it so sad how envious they are of that king <laughs> that so mindset bad. versus wait no we <laughs> deserve better <laughs> Yeah, let's like chip away at this gold here, figure out what we can do with it. Wow. So as the economy goes up and the person's standards of living goes up, say someone's born in a bad or neutral area, and then by the time they're older, they're living comfortably and better off. So you could say they're, they were born out of five for a happiness, and then at the end of their life, they're at an eight. Then they have a child or children. Their eight is that child's new average of five. So even though that person is in a better situation, a better standard of living, they're not as happy as the person before. So is that a new issue that is arising with, say, society? No, I mean, that's just the way it is. Like, <laughs> I'm not if you give me like a happiness, if, if I was alive in 1800 and you gave me a happiness survey. Um, the, the point of that isn't like, oh, it's so sad. What's the point of all this progress? The point is that these stupid surveys don't tell you anything because in the, if you gave me a happiness survey in 1800, um, if I was alive then, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, I haven't got a car and I don't have electricity, so I'm a seven. Uh, in the same way that if you gave me a happiness survey now, I'm like, well, geez, I'm not starving and my husband's really cool. So I'm like, I'm a seven. Um, I, you know, I, and I don't think like, oh, well, you know, I don't have a flying car and I was promised a jetpack and that never came to fruition. So I'm a three, but you don't do that. Right. You, you, you kind of look at your, your world and the rate, the level of development that is normal and natural to you and say, oh, well, I'm all right. I'm okay. Thank God. Or if you're like starving and it sucks and you're going to be like a four or a three or something like that. But the thing is that that's actually not affected that much by the level of development anyway. Because there's this great study, terrible, but great illustration. They studied these happiness psychologists who went to Calcutta and they purposely sought out the lowest of the low. They wanted slum dwellers, uh, street sleepers, something like that, and prostitutes. And their main finding of this paper was um, they weren't as unhappy as you might expect. Now this is the lowest of the low in the world. They weren't as unhappy as you might expect. Um, so why do we have this cliche of poor people being unhappy? I mean, that is, it is prejudiced and it is wrong. Why do we have this 
this idea of poor people as being unhappy. And then if you go through the footnotes, it's just like a footnote. And it was like, oh, there was an anomaly where one question that we asked, they all answered the same was, if you could go back in time and change anything about your life, would you change anything? And they all said, I would change everything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so people's capacity, their immense capacity for resilience and their tendency to make the best of a bad situation is then used as a justification to keep them in that situation. And that's the same thing here. The fact that, we're able, that we adjust to our surroundings becomes justification to say, well, what's the point? It's wrong to want to have more. This is it. Enjoy it. <laughs> this is all there's ever going to be. And you can understand that because actually, I don't actually write that the economy is getting better. I mean, things are getting better. Like objectively, our standard of living is getting better. But in terms of like the health of the economy, we have real problems. Like they didn't, like, the whole anti-growth discourse within, you know, these institutions it started out, one of the first places that it was really powerful was in international development, where they started to turn away from economic growth. And this idea that like um, growth liberalism, economic liberalism would bring other kinds of liberalism. They were like, oh, they looked at these countries like, oh, that's not happening. <laughs> and so they, they turned away from growth liberalism, not because they were like, had this epiphany, like, oh, maybe we should pursue happiness instead. No, it wasn't happening. Like there were persistent issues like that economic model just did not work, uh, partially because they these countries live in a subordinate relationship to other countries. And they just they build this infrastructure and it gets privatized. Anyways, so they, they started to turn away from this because it wasn't working at the same time, like the capitalism is creating is experiencing issues with growth. Um, there's problems finding um a productive investment there's a disincentive from productive investment and, and strong incentive to invest in like bubbles and things like that like why would you take the risk of producing something that may not sell why not just give university graduates a ton of debt that they have to pay back right but of course they have to pay it back by getting a job actually doing something in the world and if nobody's investing in that where we got a problem so there are these like really big problems within capitalism it's not like the capitalism is just this wonderful dynamic force all the time. Otherwise, we'd never have crisis, right? And the, the fact that we like cannot control this and we've just totally run out of ideas, it makes sense to kind of direct people's attention away from that, to downplay the importance of growth, because capitalism is experiencing persistent problems with economic growth. It's, it's experiencing persistent problems with uh, the relative rate of profit. And I'm not saying like, obviously the absolute rate of profit is increasing, but the relative rate of profit, many people argue has been on a long-term decline. And so I think that actually, um, I do think that again, I think when these people were describing something, oh, maybe we should focus on happiness. I think they're sincere, but I think they're, because they see capitalism is just natural. This is just the way things are. There's nothing else. It's not possible to have anything else. It makes sense then that you would say, well, if capitalism can't grow anymore, we better think about something else. We better have some other goal. But of course, if capitalism can't grow, grow anymore, it's not like we're gonna be like, la la la, harmony, steady state. No, capitalism not growing at a sufficient rate is what we call depression and crisis. It is not good for human beings. It's, and it's totally artificial. We've got plenty of stuff on this planet, plenty for everybody. So when people tell you that you can't have more, it's because capitalism can't give it to you. It's not because you really can't. 
And it's that demand to want to have more that will hopefully push us past this impasse that we have. Gotcha. I remember hearing a stat that uh, in America, the economy is more unequal than the peak of the French Revolution. So to feed off that, but also it sounds like one of the major themes is capitalism is flawed. The inherent belief to follow the pursuit of happiness isn't bad in itself, but it's used as a way to justify this economy that's going the way it's been going. Is that correct? Well, no, because you'd have to you have to argue against it at a certain point because it's not going to give it to you, right? You have to, like, if capitalism can't give you a job, if you've got this, like, enormous group of people who are just surplus to requirements, which is crazy, by the way. How can human hands, minds that can think, ever be surplus? It's impossible. But if within capitalism, there's no use for you, well, that's it then, right? There's nothing beyond capitalism. There is no alternative. You better give up on the pursuit of happiness, you better give up on that nice car you've always wanted and the nice home that you wanted for your children, with nice pictures on the walls and paint colors you can change whenever you want. All these little simple things people just like, you can't really have that anymore. And how dare you forever wanting it? It's your fault that this happened. And that was the rhetoric in 2008 too. It was like, it's like capitalism's, you know, 2007, capitalism is a wonderful system because it's gonna give you this house and blah, blah, blah. And then it all goes to shit and they're like, you idiot, how dare you think that capitalism is going to give you a house? Like there's nothing <laughs> that people could do. They're like wrong no matter what. It's, it's always blamed on the people instead of the system. It's always our responsibility versus like, like greenwashing pops into my head with like recycling. Like, it's oh, it's our faults. The uh, climate change, different topic, but like is the issue versus the real causes of the problem. Oh, absolutely. And it becomes, this is very, this is a very specific thing. It's very, it's like a, one of the most powerful kind of ideologies that we have now is the ideology of we, our, us, we did this, we humans, blah, 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 transforming everything into like a, an anthropogenic problem, not classes, not structures in society, not particular groups, not competing interests. No, we, us undifferentiated mass of humanity aren't we just a plague on the planet and then it creates this kind of like creates pessimism because if there's just something about us in our deep rooted in our human nature well then we can't really change it right the solution is make less of us that's scary it's very scary and second it produces these kind of like uh narrow and piecemeal attempts to deal with social problems by changing the nature of human beings, by changing human psychology. And so these things can't work because they are the problems are not human nature because we'd have the same problems forever, right? We wouldn't have different problems in different societies and throughout history. Um, but also um, the problems are structural. They're within society. They're within the, the very way, the very functioning, the proper functioning of a capitalist society will produce these, these issues. Um, but we can't really say that because there is no alternative and capitalism is just nature. Uh, that's just the way things are. It's just become totally naturalized. Um, and so we, what we can do is we can try to change people. We can try to change people. And then, of course, and this is where a lot of these discourses come in. They promise to change people somehow. If we could just make people be happy with less and be happy with this and raise people's self-esteem and self-efficacy, somehow, some way we'll solve this problem. And then it doesn't work. 
And instead of realizing, well, hey, maybe it's not, maybe our whole framework is wrong. Maybe our whole understanding of the problem is wrong. We just become more and more pessimistic, more and more misanthropic. Gosh, human beings will never change, will they? It's not human beings. It's the system that we live in. It's the very functioning, the proper functioning of the system. I mean, people can be really nice. You can really want to do things. Um, Like as a capitalist, you can be a great person, give to charity, be kind to your pets, whatever. But the the logic of the system forces your hand. Because if you don't do it, you're going to go to business. If you don't bring the costs down, you're going to go be a worker yourself. But it's the logic of the system that forces your hand. No matter how good and nice you are, no matter how much you meditate. (laughs) And we have to reckon with that. I know we don't want to reckon with that because of the 20th century and everything that's happened, but we're going to have to. We have to really, really start thinking like adults and stop blaming our parents for everything. (laughs) Stop blaming our damage and our human psychology and look a little deeper to the societies in which we live, to the the very structuring of our economies. Well, as great of a spot that has to end it, I just want one more follow-up. You mentioned the justification why I'm following up with this too is because like you said, society's got this whole systemic issue, but then even on a smaller scale, like an individual person might feel fat and they want to go work out or they're depressed about something and they want to fix this or that. I feel like a lot of people don't fix these issues because of that justification where, Oh, if I meditate, then I'll feel okay. I'm fat or something like, I don't know, like some (laughs) justification of this justification or that one and keep, using these to sort of cover up the issue versus pursuing like versus writing that book or versus i don't know it was like some example but using these justifications to replace actually taking action and fixing issues uh yeah i i can understand that um i i can also understand i can understand why people like like to go to the gym and like to meditate and that kind of thing it gives you like a purpose and a project um, even if that project is yourself, I can understand that like, while eventually it will prove futile because we're all going to grow old and die anyway. <laughs> I get that. Like in the absence of, of like bigger meanings in life, it makes sense. I can also understand why people wouldn't want to take responsibility for these sorts of things because we have this, such a weird contradiction in culture where we reduce everything to individual responsibility but we also don't believe humans have human beings have the capacity to take responsibility. Um, so we have this at the same time as we kind of blame everything on individuals. We also have a narrative of the human subject, which is very weak and very degraded. Um, and of course, it makes perfect sense why you would do that, right? Well, you blame everything on individuals because you think people are weak. And it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And like, I, you know, a lot of the stuff that I criticize um are these things that are things that i used to believe myself so i think to really understand something you have to know what it's like to believe it and like i grew up in therapy culture just like anybody else in their 30s and god anybody else in their 20s now or teens or kids you know and you have this like idea that like you should be constantly aware of your psychology and of course i'm weak and i remember my my roommate uh she's my best friend I shouldn't just call her my roommate my best friend in university um she she had her mom would like constantly be diagnosing her with something constantly like if she didn't do her work it wasn't just that she like lacked responsibility or like self-control it's like oh you've got low serotonin 
And she'd bring these books like the serotonin solution. And she had like pills, like an old person, you know, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, like she would take all the time. And I remember she went to um, the United States where I'm Canadian, obviously. And um, she, she was adopted from the Southern States. Her mother, her birth mother was very young when she had her. So she's talking to her, like her great grandmother, like this ancient woman. And she's telling her all about her struggles with school and everything. And she's like, oh, you know, I find it very difficult to do my schoolwork because I have low serotonin. And her grandmother just looks at her and goes, maybe you're just lazy and undisciplined. And to to my friends, like great, like credit, this was like a revelation for her, an incredible epiphany because things had changed so much in society that no one had ever actually said to her, maybe you're just lazy and undisciplined. And so she came back and she was like, Ashley, do you know what my grandmother said? Maybe I'm lazy and undisciplined. Maybe I am. <laughs> I was like, shoot, maybe I am too. <laughs> and it was so freeing because before that, you know, I was just listening to her and I was like, oh, wow, you're so smart. Your mom is so smart. She knows all about this, this new psychology and so on. And it's like, I too find it hard to get my work done. And I will never be able to deal with this until I can get an appointment with a psychologist who will be my magical, you know, my magical solution. And then I learned about self-discipline, <laughs> which I literally, and I was like, if I want to do something, I got to actually just do it. Like, wow. <laughs> it's like, it's the things that change so much that we just have so many discourses that are, are at our disposal that we can use to make sense of the fact that we find it difficult to do things sometimes and that hard things are hard. Um, and that I do think while I do completely understand that therapeutic discourses are very helpful in making spaces for in, in institutions for people with different ways of doing things. And so I, I use them strategically myself to help students all the time. Totally get that. Uh, but at the same time, I think there is something to be said for eschewing some of that and actually trying to discipline yourself. I think that's a that's a, like that's a worthwhile project. I, I I understand why people why people do that because for myself, I found it to be an incredibly freeing freeing thing, um, where um, the sort of therapeutic discourse kind of put me in a prison of dependence on a professional. Is that story why you wrote the why you did that research on medicalization and how everything nowadays is so medicalized and every little thing means oh you have this or you have that or that versus being a person. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was all part of my kind of the revelations that I had circa 2007 when I was like 22 years old or something like that. I, you know, I, you, you come across these things and they have such an aura of science and medicine around them. You just think, well, of course, these things are, they're verified by science. This is just the correct way to live. This is this new knowledge that we have of human beings. So as an educated person, a good citizen, I should know about these things and I should use them to make sense of my life. That's what I just thought. And then when I learned about things like the uh, replication crisis, I didn't know, but I mean, like, I kind of knew that there were these kinds of issues. It wasn't called the replication crisis at the time, but that, you know, uh, negative results aren't published. A lot of the research is, you know, you've got circular citations and the programs are um, reviewed by people with an interest in reviewing them. It's a humongous amount of ideology. There's a big part of like, social control involved and also like the internalization of power through our sort of self you know you you um you control yourself through these discourses right the 
it's like it's no power inside is no longer like the the policeman that beats you over the head it's you the policeman's inside your head to use the kind of cliche you know like reading Foucault and stuff like that I was like shocked these things have a history and that actually the science is more rhetorical than real and I was pretty mad because I was like man I wasted a lot of my time obsessing about my own emotions about myself thinking I was supposed to do that is like a good person supposed to do better yourself and then when I stopped thinking about myself so much I became so much lighter (laughs) and you know because I became then focused on a project beyond myself as well which was to pursuit of knowledge to, to understand things now if I ever become disappointed it's when I come home and I'm like fuck I didn't learn anything new today and then I kind of think like, oh, that's cool, because that's my job <laughs> to, to learn something new, to try to understand the world and to try to explain it to other people and hopefully try to get to the bottom of this and try to get to a better future. That's my project now. And it makes suffering worthwhile. I don't even notice it. Um, and, you know, Edgar, Edgar Cabanas said the same thing. He's the author of a book called um, Manufacturing Happy Citizens with Eva Luz. And he's a psychologist. And he said the same thing. He says, I just don't think about my own psychology that much. It's liberating. Uh, freeing. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there any uh, final message that you want to tell the audience? Yeah, I guess it would be to um, whenever people try to tell you it's us, it's human nature, it's human beings. I mean, I would just think about the fact that human beings live in pretty extraordinarily different ways and have done so throughout history um there is something very specific to the way that our world is structured and i would just encourage people to understand that to, i i would like to depoliticize psychology and repoliticize economics you don't have to be an economist um every worker is an economist all we have to do is desire want more want a better world and try to figure out how to get there and stop with the people who think that who will try to tell you you know resist the people who try to tell you that that's impossible and that you the only thing you can change is yourself because we we can through human reason through the capacity our capacity to reason and understand we can take the reins we can take control of history we're the only things that ever have we're the only things that ever will we have to face up to that and take responsibility for the future through reason and understanding Sounds good. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. (laughs) Dr. Ashley Frawley, thanks for coming out to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. For everybody listening, this is The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHUS stores at the top of the hour. Be sure to go to podcasttheway.com, follow on Spotify, give a five star on Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Go to podcasttheway.com. As always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. <laughs>